just can't seem to heal with your addicted or unfaithful partner living under the same roof. But you've been told God hates separation and divorce. What's a betrayed spouse supposed to do? Hi, I'm Kim Pullen, founder of Hope for Spouses, and welcome to this week's episode of Lunchtime Live. For those of you who are new to our ministry, I started Hope for Spouses after my separation uh, due to my husband's adultery. And I just really, during that time, I focused on my own healing using God's word and a circle of safe others around me to help me work through all the stuff that I had to work through. Now, during that time, I got out of God's way. Uh, in other words, I let God work on my husband while I worked on me. And well, we've been back together now for a little over four years, and God is at the center of our both our personal lives and at our marriage. And because of that, we have an incredible marriage now. So just a little bit about my story. So while we were separated, uh, and mostly we got separated because I found out first my husband had had multiple affairs, and then he chose to stay in a relationship with uh, another woman. And he refused to, to leave that relationship. So I initiated the separation. And uh, it was really challenging. But the reason I separated was because I knew what God's word said, that he couldn't be living in an unfaithful uh, relationship with me, you know, because that's not God's plan. I mean, God says one spouse, you know, you're supposed to have one spouse. You're supposed to, you made a covenant to stay with me and you're not with me. So you can't continue living in our home. You can't continue um, like everything's okay. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You, you know, either choose me or you choose her. So, you know, when I, when I going through that, I mean, my, the reason I separated was because I refused to allow myself to live in a situation where I was going to continue to be, um, treated like, not like the one wife I was committed to being there, that he was committed to being, I was not going to be, uh, part of a tribe. Let's put it that way. So I share my story because I really want to use this Lunchtime Live to address those specifically living with an addicted or an unfaithful spouse, uh, and especially if your spouse is unrepentant or they keep getting, you know, you, you keep getting triggered because of this circle, that you, you know, this what I call the dance. You keep talking the same way. You keep, you know, this, this. Um, passive aggressive stuff that goes on in your relationship and they they somehow twist your words or you know you're being obsessive and they're saying oh leave me alone so there's the cycle that we go through and we can't heal while we're in that cycle and it, it kind of starts to feel like we're going crazy especially if they're deflecting and blaming us for why they're doing what they're doing so the big question now okay and this is this is really the crux of it is what does the Bible say about separation after sexual betrayal. And the truth is, it really doesn't say anything. I mean, there's nothing specific in the Bible. Now, for women, of course, and the majority of my viewers here are women, I mean, there's no book, chapter, and verse we can turn to, okay, in the Bible that talks about that. And it's mostly for one main reason, and that's because the cultures of which, when the Bible were written and today, are vastly different. So, you know, the Bible, it's really important to understand that the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written for an Eastern mindset. Now, if you want to understand more about what I mean by this, there's some great resources that you can, can look into. One of them is a book called Misreading the Bible Through Western Eyes, and I'll put the link in 
the comment section so you can find it. But it really talks about the difference in our cultures and how we tend to read the Bible through our own set of lenses, and yet the Bible was written from a whole different perspective on life, on relationships, on everything. And so we have to make sure that when we read the Bible, we're not reading it with a skewed view. Otherwise, we're not getting an accurate perception of what the Bible is really saying. So another great resource is something called the Bema Podcast. Uh, you can go to bemadiscipleship.com. And it, it's a little lengthy as far as kind of really getting into going through the, they go through the whole Bible, but it's so powerful to help us understand the differences in the cultures between the Eastern culture, uh, and especially in the you know Old and New Testament times, and the Western culture that we live in today, especially if you're in the States or in Europe. So uh, one of the things that is vastly different and was different even in the, in the ancient times was that women's rights varied. So today it's, you know, we're like the Me Too, you know, it's, there's so many things right now going on with, you know, women and women being abused over time. And, and this is, this has gone on in multiple cultures over centuries and millennia. But in the ancient times, you know, there was a waxing and waning of the different cultures. So, you know, one, one, um, culture would rise up, one nation would rise up, and they would dominate for a period of time. So you like you think of the Assyrians, you think of the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. And with each change, and even within those different uh, eras, women's rights vary, depending on even who was leading at the time. So, I mean, you could have priestesses, and they, I mean, women could be priestesses and landowners, artisans and poets, and and but they were also slaves. <laughs> So in most circles, they were rarely given the status of men. And most often they were treated more like, like chattel or property. But the Jewish culture was very different. Um, there's a quote by a gentleman, uh, his name is Alfred Edersheim from the book called Sketches of Jewish Social Life. And he was a scholar uh, on Jewish social life. And he wrote the whole tendency of the Mosaic legislation, and even more explicitly that of later rabbinical ordinances, was in the direction of recognizing the rights of women, with a scrupulousness which reached down even to the Jewish slave, and a delicacy that guarded her most sensitive feelings. Indeed, we feel warranted in saying that in cases of dispute, the law generally leaned to her side. So for the most part, divorce and remarriage laws in the Jewish culture were actually for the protection of women. I'm going to put a link to a really great article that's just kind of a summary um, of a uh, long text uh, about very, that goes into a lot of great detail about you know, the Jewish culture and their divorce and remarriage and, and how the scriptures really accommodated that. And, and so I'm going to put a link in there. Uh, the summary is by Douglas Jacoby. Now, um, this is the po I want to share with you a poem that um, that really talks about how the Jews felt about uh, marriage and for a man how he viewed his wife. So it says, "If death hath snatched from thee the wife of youth, it is as if the sacred city 
were, and even the temple in the pilgrim days, defiled, laid low, and leveled with the dust. The man who harshly sends from him his first wooed wife, the loving wife of youth, for him the very altar of the Lord sheds forth its tears of bitter agony. All right, so now it's hard for us to grasp the meaning of this poem because, well, first of all, as a, mostly as Americans, we don't like poetry. Most people don't care for poetry. It's too hard for, we have to think too deeply about it. But especially in the Western culture, you know, we don't really understand how the gravity of what they're saying here because we don't understand the significance of the temple and the altar to the Jewish people. And it, they were huge. I mean, the temple was the center of your the, the living of the Jewish culture. It was this, it's where everything, and then the altar was where you offered your sacrifice. It was a sacred place of where you would offer your sacrifices for your sin. And so the, the comparison of how, you know, if you, if your, your spouse was snatched from you, you know, it was if the, the temple had been laid low. I mean, th there was, there was that kind of a mourning. And then if you sent your, 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 your love, you're the one you had wooed into a marital relationship, if you sent her away, it was like the, the, the altar was, was crying bitter tears. I mean, that's how they saw women and their first love, their, their, their wives. They treasured their wives. So this is why it's so important for us to remember that, the, the, that this is such a different culture. When we read the Bible, we're reading words from a different culture. And so we have to remember that we, the Bible can never mean to us what it never meant to its original audience. Okay, I'm going to say that again because I think it's really important. The Bible can never mean to us what it never meant to its original audience. We can't read things into it. So we can't pick and choose scriptures to validate what we want them to say if that's not what they, if that, if that's not what they ever meant to be said. And that's our temptation, always. It's always our temptation. So how in the world do we prevent that, okay? So really, what we really have to do is we have to take a contextual view of what the Bible says about marriage, what God, how God feels about marriage. And before we dive into that, though, I want to dispel this argument about, and it comes up regularly, is that this whole idea of, well, didn't God allow like multiple partners? Like, didn't he allow polygamy? Because we see it in scripture. Now, while we do see it in scripture, uh, according to Edersheim, the gentleman we just read from, it was the exception rather than the rule. Because as we can look, go back and look and see, it caused so much strife in a family, so much dysfunction. I mean, you can just look at Abraham in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. You just look at the, the relationship between Sarah and Hagar. And, I mean, talk about dysfunction. I mean, it was crazy. It ended up creating this huge split in later generations between the, the daughter of, or the son of Sarah and the son of Hagar, you know, uh, Isaac and, and Ishmael. There was huge conflict between those, those different clans. Uh, but it was because there, was, there shouldn't have been more than one wife. It should have only been Sarah. And then Jacob. And Jacob's, Jacob had four wives. So he had Rachel and Leah. And then, he, and then he also, because they were so competitive with each other, not meant to have that many wives. 
even have two. They also, you know, told him, sleep with my, my maidservants. And so Billa and Zilpah. So that's in Genesis 29, 14 through um, 30, 24. So there was like all this strife. And even, you know, because of all that, you ended up having Joseph being sold into slavery, like all this stuff from successive generations because there should have only been one spouse in the relationship. So if we look at the Bible in context, we're not supposed to have more than, than one spouse. And I mean, you look at the way God created Adam and Eve. Uh, they, God didn't create Adam and then multiple wives. He created one. And then Moses himself, you know, who was considered you know, one of the biggest leaders of the people, he only had one wife. So every time there is more than one wife, there is strife in the family. I mean, in the New Testament, if you want to be an elder, you know, if you want to be a leader, it says you have to be the husband of only one wife. So God designed us to have only one partner for life. When we step outside of that, there are consequences. Okay, so I just want to say that right up front because it tends to come up in people's minds. So what does God, if we're, we're going to take a contextual view of the Bible, what does God you know, what does he infer? What does he say specifically about marriage and, and his purposes and intentions for marriage? So there's a lot of different scriptures and, and that we could look at. I'm going to put all these in the comment section because it's really important that you look up the stuff on your own and don't just take my word for it. But Ephesians 5, the whole chapter, not just the submission portion. Look at the whole chapter, Hebrews 13, 4, Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Song of Solomon, the whole book, and uh, 1 Corinthians 7. So, you know, read through all of those passages on your own, but God gives a, these are the primary scriptures that really give a, uh, what what's God's purpose? What What's God's intention for, for the marital relationship? And, you know, throughout the Old and to New Testament, God refers to his relationship with Israel, the, the you know, the Jewish people, um, and then the church as, a marriage between him and his people and or as Jesus you know Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride but it's it's a literally a relationship that he quite literally laid down his life for in spite of uh, Israel's unfaithfulness he laid down his life I mean Jesus went to the cross so that God's people could be reunited with him so as we go into this contextual thing we're going to do what I can say, we're going to go vertical. Okay. So we're going to start with looking at what does the Bible say about relationships with one another? And that does include marital relationships. Uh, Jesus's relationship with women and then God's role as a protector and a defender. So first God's standard for all our relationships. Now there are a ton of scriptures and I'm we're only going to touch on a few of them. Uh, and I'm going to put a link so you can go and look at all the one another scriptures. But this is God's standard for all our relationships in the body of Christ. And that includes our marriages. All right. John 13, 34 to 35 says, They will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Uh, Romans 12, 10, Be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Be perfectly united with one another in mind and thought. Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build up one another. Hebrews 10.24, spur each other to love and good deeds. 
1 John 1, 7, fellowship with one another as we walk in the light. Uh, 1 John 4, 11, love, agape love for one another. as We're supposed to love each other with this unconditional love that I talked about in last week's uh, Lunchtime Live. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, live at peace with one another. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to each other. And in fact, he says so strongly in Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you see, we have all these different passages that talk about the one another relationship, what God expects from us. Now, I want to look at a couple of scriptures that are often misused when it talks about specifically the marital relationship. Ephesians 5.22. This is the one when, when I'm talking with a lot of ladies, they always come back to this because this is one they hear the most. Wives, submit to your husbands. Of course, they don't always read that scripture in context because, again, read all of, of Ephesians 5. But even just 5.22 through 29, you know, the roles of the wife are 55 words there if you're reading in the NIV. The roles of the husband are 140 words. And the, that, the, that relationship is compared to Christ and the church, the way that God designed it. And if we read it in context, basically God deplores pornography, what we, what we would call you know, pornography, but it's impurity in the Bible. And adultery, he talks about that in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, Hebrews 13, 4, and then all through, um, and especially in Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. And this is in the same chapter as this particular scripture. So, um, you know, we, we have to make sure we're reading all of that in context. And then in Colossians 3, 12 through 13, it talks about bearing with one another. So in the Greek, that word bear with one another is the word anetcho. And I'm probably not saying that correctly. So forgive me if you're a Greek scholar. But, um, but it basically means to put up with, have patience with, endure, to have a complete... To, to have to complete a process or still bear up even after going through the needed course of action. So when we bear with one another, even after we've worked through a bunch of stuff and the person still keeps sinning uh, or they're working through a process and they still keep sinning, we, we still need to bear with one another. So it's literally to hold oneself erect and firm against any person or thing. And so there's an implied thing here of, of being able to pardon somebody from a debt that is owed to you. All right, so what does that all mean? So basically, we are called to bear with one another, to even when we're working through stuff, if our spouse is working through stuff, we are called to bear with them as they work through it. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit later into some more detail. But these are all passages of one another relationships, that it's, it's, it's our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now remember, our spouse, especially if they uh, call themselves a Christian, are our brother in Christ first before they're our spouse. All right. So we're supposed to bear with one another. These are all passages that are commanded to um, the churches. And so this is the role for everybody. So it's not like our marriage is different. In fact, our marriage should magnify these things. They should be even more so in our marriage than even with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the implied is that we, we pardon the debt that is owed to us. In other words, we are forget we forgive okay so we are and, and and even more so we are commanded to forgive in first peter 4 8 he says above all 
love, agape, unconditional love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. All right, so he's not talking about like phileo love, like this, you know, this affection. And, and yeah, we can feel that way toward our spouse when everything's going well in our marriage, but he calls us to agape, love each other deeply because love covers over the multitude of sins. And in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, we're commanded to forgive each other. Uh, and we're also commanded to be trustworthy, to keep our promises. Matthew 5, 37 and 2 Timothy 2, 2 talks about being trustworthy and why it's important. Now, you're probably asking, okay, what does that have to do with any of this? What does, you know, forgiving and trustworthy have to do with these one another passages? And I say this because I want us to understand that we are never commanded anywhere in Scripture to trust other people. We're never commanded. It's not that we shouldn't. In fact, if we have those type of relationships, that those phileo type of relationships that I talked about last week, uh, if we have, um, you know, the storga relationships within our family, we're going we're gonna to have that trust. But it is never commanded in the scriptures. And again, we're, talk, we're looking contextually at the Bible. Okay. So it is never commanded. In fact, in Psalm 41, 9, David, who was betrayed by many of his friends, warned us to be careful who we trust. I mean, Jesus in John 2, 24, he limited who he entrusted himself to. He said, he said because he knew where people's hearts were. And in Matthew 7, 6, he even tells us on the Sermon on the Mount to you know, be careful to whom you entrust, you know, those things that are valuable to you. And for us, it's our hearts. You know, it's the, the deep things. It's ourselves we're entrusting to other people. So he said, be careful, be wise about how you do that. So all of that comes into play of really understanding that, that this, that, that yes, we are commanded to have all these one another things in our relationships, but one of those is not to necessarily trust somebody who has damaged the trust in our relationship. So that is not a command. So there's a difference between forgiveness and trust in those one another relationships. All right. Now, number two, we're going to look at how Jesus raised the new standard of how to treat women. So, when we look at how Jesus treated or treasured women, it's going to give us a whole different view, maybe than how we've really looked at God and the Bible. Again, we're doing contextual. We're looking at the whole scripture here about what does God think about, or what did Jesus, how did Jesus treat women? So we're going to start in John 2, uh, and then in John 19, 25 through 27, we look at Jesus's relationship with his mother, incredible relationship with his mother. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, he healed her, Matthew 5, 35 to 43. The widow of Nan, he raised her son from the dead, her only son, Luke 7, uh, 11 through 17. The crippled woman who uh, Jesus straightened her. She was, it was in, the, I think it was, they were in, in the temple area and she had been crippled for years and it was on the Sabbath and it caused a lot of havoc. So Luke 13, uh, 10 through 17. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, Jesus' incredible relationship with her and the whole family. In John 11, you really see that. The bleeding woman in Mark 5, 25 to 34, who had been bleeding for years. And some of people think it was actually vaginal bleeding. And the doctors couldn't heal her, so she was considered unclean. And he 
just his compassion for her was amazing. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, that was Martha's sister, uh, anointed Jesus in John 12, 1 through 8. Uh, Salome, Susanna, James's mother, and other women who supported Jesus in Mark 15, 40 to 41, and Luke 8, 2 through 3. Jesus actually had women who supported him in his ministry. Uh, the Samaritan woman, John 4, uh, 1 through 26, and 39 to 42. Just his gentleness with her when she did not understand what he was talking about, how gentle and patient he was with her, and really called her to the truth. Joanna, Mary the wife of Clopas, and other women that were at the cross and then at the tomb in Luke 24, 1 through 10. Uh, Luke 7, 36 to 50, the sinful woman, the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and the Pharisees or the, the leaders that were there were like, oh, how could Jesus let her touch him? And, and Jesus is compassion for her. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, 1 through 11, who was literally caught in the act of adultery and they, the Jews wanted to stone her. Uh, the leaders, and then the woman on the the women on the Golgotha road as Jesus was going to the cross, uh, just his connection with those women in, in Luke twenty three to twenty eight, the widow giving her offering in Mark twelve forty one to forty four, how Jesus really like lifted her up, uh, the Canaanite woman also known as the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew fifteen twenty one to twenty eight, and then of course Mary Magdalene who was the first person to see Jesus risen. Not any of the, the 12, the men, but he picked a woman to be the first person who would actually witness his rising from the dead in Mark 16, 9. Now these, these show, I mean, just the, the place, the, the elevation that Jesus gave, Jesus gave to women and, and his relationship, his connection with them. And this, Jesus was so far ahead of his culture when it came to this, because this is not how most women were treated in the time. And, and yes, the Jews had a, a different view of a way that they would help women, but Jesus went to a whole new level. And, and I love that. I mean, and you even look at Paul who imitated Jesus. Paul had a ton of close female friendships. You see in all of his letters and the epistles, he had, you know, he talks um, with them and he talks about them and, and how much he loves them and how much he respects them. So, you know, why do we look at Jesus as in his relationship with women? You know, and I think it's really important that when we get into a relationship with a spouse that is abusive or uh, unrepentant in their sin, what tends to happen is we start devaluing ourselves and we will take the abuse. We will, you know, we somehow think we deserve it, all the things that we've done. And so we end up devaluing ourselves, but God never did. And Jesus never did. Even with the women who were in flagrant sin, Jesus never devalued them. Paul never devalued them. And so why should we allow ourselves to be devalued, devalued by people who are not following God's word? So ladies, I want to encourage you, study out Jesus's love for women. Go back through these passages and see how much he loved women and how much he valued them. And, and you need to value yourselves the same way that Jesus valued you. It's super important that we get that. So, all right, so we've looked at the one another relationships and what God's expectation for that is. And again, we're doing a contextual view of all this. Um, and we looked at how Jesus, how Jesus treated women, how he valued 
them. So this leads us to the need for a contextual understanding of how God feels about adultery or sexual addiction, which the Bible calls impurity, and how the betrayed, you know, those who have been betrayed or abandoned or rejected or whatever you want to call it, how they should be treated. So regardless of, of all of the, God needs to be at the center of the healing process. So I, I just want to say that, that if you're, if you're pursuing worldly means exclusively, and I, I'm not nixing counseling, or I think counseling in its place is awesome. And there are, I went to counseling, many people need it to deal with, you know, past issues, core issues that have created the person that we are today. But God needs to be at the center of the healing process. You know, it can't be our will or our spouse's will or even our desire to punish our unfaithful spouse for what's being done. So God has to be at the center of the healing process. And, and that means we've got to get God back on the throne of our life. If, if, it's, if we're, we've been living our lives to, you know, control our spouse because they're hurting us or, you know, our spouse doing things the way that they, we, we, that's got to change. So God has got to be back on the throne of our life if he hasn't already been there in your life. And God hates adultery, idolatry, unfaithfulness. You can just look at some of the scriptures we've already talked about. I mean, God really, really does. In fact, in the Old Testament, that people were supposed to be stoned if they had committed adultery. I mean, it was that serious about it. So what, therefore, is God's standard for protecting or defending, you know, people? Because God is considered a protector. He's considered, you know, he was the protector and defender of his people. So let's, let's look at these scriptures in um, Psalm 82.3. It says, God defends the weak and the fatherless. Psalm 12.5, he protects the needy from those who malign them. He rescues and delivers the weak and the needy from the wicked. That's in Psalm 82.3 through 4. He offers refuge in the shadow of his wings until the disaster passes. Psalm 57.1. He protects us from the violent who scheme against us. Psalm 144. He is a shelter, a fortress of refuge where we are safe and can rest. Psalm 91 through 4. So our defender and our protector. See, God calls for or makes way for his people to be apart from those who would bring harm to the body of Christ. You know, in the, in the Old Testament to his people. I mean, God made a way for his people to always be safe. I mean, throughout the old, the whole Old Testament, God was their protector. He was their leader. He was their provider. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5 through 7, Matthew 5, 29 through 30, I mean, it talks about how God feels about, um, you know, being able to, you know, separating us from sin. And and specifically in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, he goes into detail about, not having you know anything to do with them. I mean, cutting off your right arm, gouging out your eye, and of course that was a hyperbole. He's you know Jesus was exaggerating there, but he's saying that that's how serious you know he is about separating ourselves from things that cause us to sin or bring harm to us. And so we can infer from that again contextual view of the scriptures that God shields his people from harm you know he he creates a safe space for his people under his wings he protects them and so why would God you know go to all the extent that he went to in the old testament and then not expect 
uh, a wife who has been emotionally, sexually abused, abandoned, rejected by her husband, why would he not want her to have a safe space for her to heal, uh, her and her children to heal? I mean, he goes extensively into the Sabbath rest. And if you, if, <clears throat> if you study out even the Sabbath uh, in the first couple chapters of, of Genesis and throughout the beginnings when he was helping them write the law and stuff like that in, in the Old Testament, God was so serious about rest because that's where we heal. That's where we get whole again. We come back and remember what's important in our lives. And God even designed our bodies and our minds with a requirement for safety in order for us to rest and be at peace. So in other words, if we're in constant trauma, in a constant state of trauma, and you can read that as fight or flight, where you're always just like, you know, what's going to happen when they walk in the door? You know, and you're all, you never know what's going to happen. You're living in a constant state of trauma. There is no rest in that situation. If you're wondering whether your spouse is on the phone talking or texting, you know, an affair partner, or they're looking at porn on a continual basis, that is not Sabbath rest within your home. You know, this is not the state that God designed us to exist in, much less heal and, and get rest and, 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 and be peaceful and, and draw closer to him. So this is where God speaks. All these different things we talked about, you know, the one another passages. We talked about how Jesus, you know, his view of women, his value of women. We looked at how God feels about his people and the need for them to be protected, for them to be in a place of sanctuary. So this is where God specifically speaks. Now, based on that, you know, we can make some logical conclusions. So now while there's no book, chapter, and verse in the Bible about separation due to adultery or sexual addiction when it talks to about women, God, God has given us the intellect and the freedom to make choices and decisions that fall maybe outside the specific boundaries of Scripture, you know, but that go along with what the scriptures are talking about. I mean, the Bible was written before we had television, before we had the internet. So, of course, you're not going to find anything in the Bible specifically about those. But you will find passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13, and chapter 10, 23, to talk about everything being permissible, but not everything is beneficial or constructive. And then even more so, Philippians uh, 1, 9 through 10 talks about being able to discern what is best. You know, that, that God trusts us that we're going to be able to do that when we're in his word and we're reading on a consistent basis and we're using a Bible contextually. We're going to be able to discern in situations that may, the Bible may not, you know, give every little teeny tiny detail, but we're going to be able to discern what is best. That God has entrusted us to that. So really where the Bible speaks you know, we, we just, we're silent. Okay. We're going to obey what, if God is, God is giving us a specific direction. We just need to do it. But where the Bible is silent, God's given us the wisdom and to, you know, the wisdom and the, the ability to infer his desire and will based on the scriptures. Now, how do we know this specifically in second Peter one, three, he says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, which we find in the scriptures, who calls us by his own glory and goodness. We have the resources, we have the scriptures to make wise decisions, even if these particular situations aren't pulled directly from the Bible. All right. 
for example, Ephesians, the husbands and wives role, uh, the passages that talks about, you know, husbands, this is your role, wives, this is your role. Now, if we're going to take a contextual look at that, we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. This is the same chapter. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, when he says, do not be partners with them, does it say, do not be partners with them unless they're your spouse? No, it doesn't say that. But, Again, contextual view, if, if our spouse is continually living in sin and refuses to change, does that mean we don't have a right to separate from them because they're, they're continuing to live in sin? And we don't want to be in the same household with them if they're continuing to do that. Okay, contextual view, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 11, talks about in, in the uh, end times, there will be terrible times in the last days. You know, people will be lovers of themselves and... And, and it gets into that they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. It says, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into the homes of weak-willed women and gain control over them. It says, have nothing to do with them. Does it say, have nothing to do with them if they're your spouse? Or does it, it I mean, it doesn't say either way. So contextual view, how does God feel about that? And then what about 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6? So where it talks about, you know, if your husband's not a Christian, if your husband's not a believer, that you need to stay with them. Again, we're talking about a woman whose husband is maybe not a disciple, not a follower of Jesus, but he's still faithful to her. He's still committed to the relationship. Again, contextual view. You know, if your spouse is not faithful to you, if they have broken the covenant of your relationship, uh, you know, you got you to gotta be thinking, okay, Contextually, how does God feel about that? And then the big passage um, that always comes into um, discussion, let's put it that way, is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. All right. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have the authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, separation, so that you may devote yourselves, what? To prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is in 1 Corinthians. He's speaking to Christians. Okay, people who are devoted to God, who have God at the center of their life. This was what this passage was specifically directed to. All right, so taking a contextual view, um, you know, it's, this is not for a couple that the spouse is not staying faithful to his wife. So, we, you know, we have to agree to stay separate for a time so that we can be devoted to prayer so that's two disciples, not talking about one person who was godly and another one who was unfaithful or adulterous. You know, when we're separated, 
It's, it's, there's a purpose behind that. When we're disciples, there's a purpose behind it. And, and there's a new term that's come out recently in therapeutic circles, maybe not super new, but anyway, it's called therapeutic separation. And I love the idea of that. And I think that is the intent of this passage in verse five, where it says, you know, so you be apart for a short period of time so you can devote yourself to prayer. And that's really, you know, that you're committing 100%. You're undistracted. That's the word when they, when they talk about devote there in the original Greek. It's you're completely focused on it. And, and that's the, that again, contextually, that's what God is calling us to. If there's, a, if there's marital issues and both of you are devoted to Christ, then yeah, if you need to separate for a time, you know, so you can get your relationship with God on straight the right way. You know, the, the guy is working on his stuff. The girl is working on her stuff. And then you come back together. That's, that's good. That's right. That's what God expects. Now, a big issue that comes up too is, well, what do you mean by separation? You know, it says you're apart for a time. Is that a couple of days? Is that, you know, a couple of months? Well, there's not really a timeline for healing, especially when you've had years of childhood wounds. And, and you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff, sometimes we forget about, it. we don't even know it's there. So all that stuff needs to be uncovered and we need to start dealing with it instead of just denying it. So when we're talking about time frame here, Americans, the West is all about time, 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 you know, time is money. And, and so we get so hung up on time, but, but, <laughs> God's timetable is not the same as ours. In fact, it says in 2 Peter 3, 8, it says, For God, uh, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So God's not bound by time and space. Um, and that in if, uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, he says, There is a time for everything. And, and so we have to, um, we, we can't bind time on God or even on our spouse of this is what the expectation is. You can only be a part for this amount of time. You know, time is our friend. You know, we have to stop thinking Western. Time is our friend. And every situation is a little bit different. So you can't say, well, you can only be a part for this amount of time. They'll come to, the couple will come back together when they're ready. I think it's also important to realize that separating is not a decision that we make lightly or based on emotion. Now, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm choosing not to talk about divorce because that's like a whole other topic. And this idea of a therapeutic separation, this idea of separating for a time like it talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, that is not for the purpose of divorce, all right? The purpose of that is so that the relationship can come back together, all right? Uh, there's this idea of divorce is a whole different topic. So I'm not even going to get into that, but it's important that we realize whether we're, you know, the separation is so that we can deal with what's going on inside of us and get whole and healthy so we can bring the relationship back together. That is the ultimate purpose of a separation. If both people are willing to work on themselves, obviously. So, and it's not an emotional reaction. Uh, it is not based on feelings. It's based on biblical convictions. Okay, time is not our enemy. God wants us to draw close to him. All right. So these are my convictions. All these scriptures I've showed you, all these contextual things. These are my convictions. Now you have to go to the Bible yourself and you've got to get your own convictions based on these scriptures. Uh, regarding separation, I encourage you, please, 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 please study out these scriptures on your own. Dive deep into them. 
It's really important that we use God's word as our standard and not ourselves. Now I want to look at one last scripture. It's in Luke 11, 24 to 26. It says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. All right. So when, when you choose to separate, or whether you choose to separate or not, you still need to be working on your own healing. Now, if you separate, okay, that's kind of like cleaning out the house so that, you know, you and your spouse are apart so that you can figure out, you know, why am I reacting when I'm reacting? What are my codependent responses or how am I being passive aggressive or how am I trying to be controlling? Your spouse has got to figure out, you know, how, you know, why I shouldn't be looking at other women. This is what God's word says and why I need to be faithful to my, like you're dealing with all of that during the separation. Um, but if you are not putting good things back in, if you are just getting separate and you're going to do, you know what, your, your, your life and your heart are like a vacuum. And if you are not very specifically putting things in your heart and in your mind to start thinking new, to start thinking different, then as this passage says, there's going to be other things that are come sweeping in and it's going to be worse off later you know, after the separation, it's going to be worse, okay, because you are not filling yourself up with God's word. Romans 12, 2 says to not conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How do we conform to the world? We let the world influence. We don't deliberately and purposely use God's word to allow our mind and our heart to be changed. So what could happen if we're not filling ourselves up with what God teaches? We're not building our own convictions. We take back our spouse prematurely. And we end up going into an insanity loop, all right? Or we invite another addict into our life. If we ended up divorcing our spouse, we invite another addict back into our life because we won't recognize what an addict looks like. You know, we're going to fall back into the same old patterns over and over and over again. I've seen it so many times. So we've got to fill up our house, our heart, our life with what God wants us to think and do and how to live, all right? So if you are ready to do that, if you are ready to allow yourself to be transformed, you're wondering, should I be, you know, how should I be separated? Should I be able, but regardless, you've got to start working on yourself. If you are ready to do that, if you're ready to be changed by God's word, then I want you to go ahead and schedule a call with me and we will come up with a strategic plan for you on exactly how you can do that. Hopeforspouses.com slash call. Again, hopeforspouses.com slash call schedule a free call with me we'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes to an hour and we're going to talk about your situation and we're going to filter it through god's word and help you to figure out exactly the path that you can take okay that concludes our time today at the hope for spouses lunchtime live we'll see you next week take care